The entire Jewish nation spent 10 months or more seeing Hashem's direct control over every facet of physicality. And as a nation, they left Mitzrayim, that land that had never had a single slave escape, an entire nation, three million people, went out, left Mitzrayim. Those same people lived through the greatest manifestation of Hashem's control over every facet of nature when they witnessed Kriyam Siyamsuf, and they witnessed the entire sea being split into petitions. They walked across. 49 days later, they received the Torah, saw B'nevuah. Every person there had the level of prophecy of literally seeing Hashem, literally knowing with absolute veracity, absolute yediyah, that Hashem is present. And they began the process of being the Amma Nifchar, the chosen nation, the Torah nation. And for about the next year or so, they spent with one goal in mind, growing, accomplishing, learning, and allowing the Torah to enter into their essence. And there were various events that happened. One of the greatest men who lived in that generation was a man named Korach. And at a certain point, despite the fact that he was a tremendous, tremendous tzaddik, and despite the fact that he was given tremendous gedula, he became jealous. He was a levi, and Moshe Rabbeinu was told by Hashem to appoint for the family of Kahat. The head of the family was not supposed to be Korach. Korach was a junior in that sense. And instead, Moshe Rabbeinu was told to appoint someone else. And when that happened, Korach was phenomenally jealous. Elitzofen ben Uziel, who was his younger cousin, was appointed to be the Nasi of the family. And not only did Korach feel jealousy, but he felt absolutely destroyed and felt that this Nasius was his and was stolen from him. Rashi explains to us that once he felt this was taken from him and he should have had it, he said the word to any cholik alav, I'm going to argue. I'm going to dispute what Moshe says, umavatel as devarov. And I'm going to mivatel what he said. But the Medrash Tantchum is a little bit more clear. It wasn't just the appointment of this person that Korach was arguing about. It wasn't just the Nesias. Says the Medrash Tantchum, I'm going to undo everything that Moshe did. Now keep in mind that the Jewish nation heard the Aseris Adibras. But the rest of the Torah, the vast majority of the Torah, Hashem gave to Moshe, and Moshe taught it to the Zikanim, and Zikanim to Yeshua, passed on the Masorah. But you see, here's the point. What Korach was saying was, it's not just the appointment of Aaron Cohen, It's not just the appointment of Elitzifam and Uziel. Those mitzvahs that Moshe Rabbeinu told us, he made them up. Tzitzitz, mezuzah, giving the carbon tamid, giving the various matanas to the coin, all of it made up. And Korach wasn't just a very righteous man, he was a brilliant man. And in fact, Rashi says, Moshe kol gadoli Yisrael Rashi quotes the Tanhuma that it wasn't just Korach. Korach grabbed with him all of the Gedolei Yisrael, the heads of the Sanhedrin. 
This was the ultimate Torah environment, and they were learning, they were steiging, and Korach was such an influence that he influenced all 250 of the greatest members of the Sanhedrin at the time, and they all accepted the fact that what Moshe Rabbeinu did was invent things, made them up, wasn't given by Hashem. And the Medrash is very clear that he was crafty and he was with tremendous guile. He took tzitzitz and he said, listen, a beged, a beged that's all made of wool. You put on two strings of tzitzitz, it patas it. What would be if we had a beged all of tzitzitz? What if you made a beged all of that type of dyed wool? Would it be chayim and tzitzitz or not? So he dressed up all of these 250 members of the Sanhedrin. He put them, he gave them a beggar of Tcheles, and he went with them to Moshe Benu and said, Moshe Benu, what is the halacha? If we wear a beggar, a garment that's all made of Tcheles, is it chayiv in tzitzes or not? Moshe said, the halacha is chayiv. They began laughing. Korach said, is it possible? Two strings can take off the obligation of an entire beggar. Surely, if the whole beggar is made of Tcheles, it doesn't require Tcheles. And the rebellion began in earnest. Korach went around at night and he said to each member of the Sanhedrin and he went from Shevet to Shevet saying, it's not my honor. I'm not mockbit about myself. I'm mockbit about you. Look at this. Moshe Benu stole the, the honor. He stole the honor and he gave it to his brother. He's inventing things. And what Korach did was launch a civil war a war against Moshe Benu, a war against the Masorah, a war against HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And just to appreciate what was at stake here, the entire Masorah, everything that we accept as Torah, as Moshe Rabbeinu, any word that a person argues with and says that halacha was not Menashemayim, deems him an apikoris, Korach wasn't arguing with one little nuance. Everything Everything that Moshe Rabbeinu said is suspect, is made up. The entire thing is malarkey. It's not given by Hashem. Moshe Rabbeinu is a badai, a liar. And what Korach was doing in plain, simple terms was creating the greatest division, the greatest rebellion, the greatest civil war in existence. He was rebelling against Hashem, destroying the Torah, and he was, in the end, destroyed, he and his 250 men with him. But here's a little question I'd like to ask. Korach was a tzaddik, but not only was he a tzaddik, he was a tremendous chacham, tremendous wisdom to the extent that he could influence and take over the 250 heads of Sanhedrin. A brilliant man. And if you're not quite sure how holy he was, he was one of the men who carried the Aaron. To carry the Aaron, you had to be on a very, very high level of Kedusha. You could die with, <clears throat> without trying very hard at all. So clearly he stood not that long before Anahar Sinai, said the words, Naseb Nishma, everything that you say, Hashem, we will do, we will keep. Just tell us it and we'll do it. So the question is, how could a man who clearly understands that Hashem runs the world. So Hashem Sinai said the words Nasa Vinishma, how could he be so delusional to think that he's going to get away with this? Meaning, what does he think Hashem's going to do? Does he think he's going to win? 
Moshe Benu says, listen, you, you 250 men, bring machtos. Each one, you'll bring your fire pan, you'll bring incense, and Hashem will choose. One will live, everyone else will die. One will live, and that will be the person who's to be the Kohen Gadol. So what did Korach think? Did he think he was going to fool Hashem? Did he think Hashem was going to go along with it? Yeah, Aaron, I chose Aaron, but you know, I changed, uh, Korach, you're a good guy, we'll, we'll put you in his stead. Do you think Hashem is going to go along with this rebellion against the entire Torah? How could he be so delusional? And a little bit more pointed question that I like to focus on is, what was Korach thinking? Did he think he was wrong, or did he think he was right? And I believe that Korach fully, fully felt that what he was doing was justified, correct, and right. And I'd like to understand how it's possible. And as we work through exactly these chazals and what happened, I believe we'll get a very interesting insight into human nature. And let's begin with the first question. And that question is, how could Korach be so delusional to think that he'll get away with this? Hashem will allow him to win. Didn't he realize he's going to die? That the earth is going to open up, swallow him alive and crush him? So to answer that, I think we need to focus on one of the largest mistakes that we human beings make, and we make it on a regular basis. We have a great misunderstanding as to who I am. If I ask you, who are you? So hopefully, if you're a person who's growing, who worked on Musr, you won't say, I'm the arms, the head, the legs, or the chest. Hopefully, you got to the point where you realize that I'm not any of those I'm inside this body, I occupy this body, but I'm the one who tells the arms and legs to move, but I'm the guy inside. And that's true, and most of us get that, but there's another mistake that we make that's a lot more subtle. If I ask you, who are you? Most of us kind of say, well, I'm the, the thoughts, you know, my, my brain, I'm, I'm, I'm the brain, right? When I, when I think something, that's me, I'm thinking that. So I'd like to share with you one interesting observation. I've never been at an autopsy. However, it is my firm belief that when they put the body in the kever, in the grave, the brain is buried along with it. And what that means in plain, simple language is the arms, the legs, the head, the chest are put into that grave and I separate. Because just like I'm not the arms, legs, or head, or chest, I'm also not the brain. I think through the brain, I process things through the brain, but much like I look through my eyes, my eyes are an eye, but my eyes bring me optical vision, they bring me sight, but I then see it, I also think through my brain, but I'm not the brain. And learning to understand and learning to recognize that I am the one inside and I am the one who tells my arms and legs to move, but I'm not my arms, legs, and chest, so too I am not the brain, is something that takes an awfully long time. And once you understand that, you begin to get a much different understanding as to who we are. And I'd like to spend a few minutes as to understanding my relationship to my brain. And to do that, let me mention something that I mentioned in the Musavad, and that is... One of the very debilitating mental diseases 
is OCD, obsessive compulsive, compulsive disorder. And it has many manifestations, but I'll give you an example of one. Imagine a man locks the front door and goes up to his bed at night. As he's about to enter his bedroom, he says, hmm, wait a minute, did I, did I lock the, is the front door locked? Hmm, I don't know. Hmm. He goes back down and he checks, yep, yep, in fact, the front door is locked. And he goes back to his bedroom. And as he's about to enter his bedroom, he says to himself, wait, is the front door really locked? Hmm, I'm not really sure. So he goes back down and he checks it. Yes, it's really locked. And he goes back up a third time and he has the same plaguing thought. Is the front door really locked? By the 40th time that evening that he's checked the lock and he's again find himself on the bedroom threshold and saying to himself, it doesn't really feel locked. He has a choice to make. His choice is either he goes back down and checks it one more time and remains a slave to these obsessive thoughts, or he says, you're right, it's not locked. It's fully ajar, but I don't care, I'm going to bed anyway. You see, obsessive thoughts come to a person and they don't make sense because he locked the door. And he checked it 39 times. And he factually knows without a doubt that the door is locked. But it just doesn't feel that way. And there's that doubt. Maybe, maybe it's not locked. Maybe it's not. No, but but I just a minute ago. But I did, I didn't, I did, I didn't. And it's at that moment that he either listens to his brain and remains a slave. Or he says, the brain says what it says, but I don't care. And if you watch people in that state, you begin to realize that not every thought that I think is me. I'll give you another example. Imagine you have a young fellow who's learning, and he's deeply engrossed in learning in the middle of ptosis, and all of a sudden an image comes into his brain, a woman. Ah, get out of here! And he pushes her away. He's back into ptosis, and he's learning, he's dying, and it's great. And all of a sudden she comes back, get out of here! And he's back to learning, back, get out of here! She's back, 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 back. No, wait, stop, I don't get it. He clearly doesn't want that image in his brain. He doesn't want to think about her. What is she doing there? He's not pulling her in. He doesn't, he's fighting like a hand to get her out of his brain. What's going on? And what you quickly realize is that I am not the brain. I think through the brain. I process through the brain. I may even remember things through the brain. But I occupy this brain. And if you like a muscle that well defines my relationship to my brain, I believe the following muscle well defines it. Imagine you have a family with school-age kids. Five kids, they're eating dinner. And after dinner, they're all vying for the one family computer. Right? One family computer, five kids. Now, depending on which child has the computer at the time, will determine what you're going to see on the screen. If it's one child, it might be a math program. Another child, it might be a game. Another child, it might be Excel. So depending on which child gets control of the keyboard will determine what comes across the screen. But imagine for a minute that all five children have to sit there the entire time. So one child controls what's going across the screen, but all of them have to watch And I believe that's an apt muscle for me and my brain. You see, there are many different components to me. Part of me is a pure, pure, holy, 
right from under the Kisya Kavod. But I also have desires, I also have appetites, I also have arrogance, I also have a temper. You see, I'm a complex person. I'm not a simple little thing. When Hashem took the neshama and put it into the body, Hashem mixed the neshama into a nefesh bahami with its drives, its appetites and desires, and it depends on which one gets control of the computer that's going to determine what goes across the screen of my mind. If it's envy, all of a sudden there are going to be certain thoughts that my brain spins out at mighty fast speed. If it's anger, but you see, whichever force takes control of my brain, it takes over the brain, and then the brain operates. The brain is a computer. It might be a fast computer. It might be a slow computer. It may have a great <clears throat> processing ability. It may have a very minor processing ability. But all it is is much like a computer. It thinks and it does. But it de- depends on who takes over the keyboard. And if it's anger or it's jealousy or if it's desire, then that's going to go across the screen of my mind. And learning to understand that every thought that my brain thinks is not necessarily me. And every thought that my brain thinks is not necessarily true takes a lot of time. Because you see, the really difficult part is that it sure does sound like me. You see, it's my voice, and it's my brain. And my brain says that what you did was so evil, you're so wicked that you deserve to be... And I forget that anger took over my brain. And I took, forgot the fact that my brain is but a processor. And now that anger took over the keyboard, it's going to process logics and rationales and reasons to justify that anger. And all of a sudden, you're going to become less important, less important. What you deserve is far, far more than I could even ever meet out to you. And as illogical as it sounds, it's really quite simple. It's not logical. Because my brain is a tool. But it's the handmaid of desire. My brain is but a handmaid that serves whoever takes over the keyboard, who's ever putting in the input. And I believe in terms of answering at least part of the question of Korach, the answer is he had a very, very good brain. He had a brilliant brain, a brain that you and I would be awed by. But he also had something called jealousy. And he also had a desire for honor. And when... When he didn't get that Nasius and someone else got that, he felt hugely jealous and his honor was slighted. And all of a sudden, that brain that he had, that computer that he had was taken over. And all of a sudden, it started spewing out all kinds of logics, all kinds of rationales, all kinds of thoughts. And those thoughts led him to actually believe that he was doing was right. And if you'd like to really understand it, let's sort of work it through for a minute. You see, Rashi explains why he felt jealous. Look at this. Korach says, my father, there were four. My father was one of four children. There was Kahat, right? There was Amram was the Bukhar. Amram Bukhar, two of his sons took the Gedula. One was Moshe and one was Aaron. They took the first top honors. Great. Who should take the next? Well, isn't I? Yitzar is the next one in line. Shouldn't I have the next honor? What did Moshe do? He took the youngest of the brothers. Remember the four. My brother, my father had four brothers. 
He took the youngest one, Ben Uziel, Lisafim Ben Uziel, gave the youngest one the honor. What a chutzpah. He took my honor. He took my honor that I was entitled to, that I should have gone, and gave it to the youngest of the uncle's sons. What a chutzpah. He took it from me. But you see, he took it from me. He stole it from me. Moshe stole that which I was entitled to, that which I should have had. And I believe that every word that Korach said, he really believed. Now, let's not make a mistake. <clears throat> the mind spins out logics at a very, very fast speed. And if your brain is larger and faster, it'll spit out logics at an even faster pace. And each step along the way, I believe that Korach absolutely absolutely believed. You see, you cannot go up against Hashem and say, yes, Hashem, you're the creator of the heavens and the earth. And yes, Hashem, you picked Moshe Rabbeinu to be the shliach. And Moshe Rabbeinu said exactly what you said, but I'm going to be mavatil his words. I'm going to undo his words, Hashem, and you'll back me. I'm confident, Hashem, you told Moshe to say, to put on tzitzit this way, but I'm going to change that and you're going to be behind me. He wasn't a fool. He knew that Hashem would not go along with it. But he also had a reason why he knew that Moshe made things up. Number one, Moshe stole something. It's obvious. It's clear. That was my honor. And it was taken from me. And it was given to somebody else inappropriately. Isn't it clear that Moshe cheated? Isn't it clear that Moshe is a liar? Isn't it obvious that everything he says from now on is to be suspect? And he's not the man he pretends to be? But what's most eye-opening is the fact that Rashi points out that Moshe said to him, there are 250 of you. There's only one Kohen Gadol. And this machtos, this firepan with the incense, this ketoros that you're going to bring, it's a very powerful formula. If you're appropriate, if you're chosen, it's machaper. But if not, it has a sama mavis, it will kill you. Says Moshe Beno to Korach Vadoso, there are 250 men here. Hashem will choose one. Everyone else is going to die. And then Rashi asks the question So, what was Korach thinking? Obviously, he was a Pikeach. He was a wise man. What was his stupidity? How could he go along with it? Explains Rashi that he saw Benavua. He saw that Shmuel Hanavi was to come out from his lineage says Korach, if Shmuel, who's greater than Moshe and Aaron together, is to come out from my lineage, isn't it obvious that I'm the one to be saved? And what that means in plain, simple language is, that Korach said to himself, let these 250 men go to their death. It's what's right, it's what's good, it's what's proper, it's what should be, because I'm standing up Laman Hashem. I'm standing up for what's right. I'm standing up for the principle I'm waging war against wickedness. Moshe Rabbeinu is a liar. Moshe Rabbeinu is stealing the Masorah. Moshe Rabbeinu is corrupting. I have to stand up, and if there's a few eggs that have to be broken, you can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs. That's the cost of principle. That's the cost of standing up for what's right. And as odd as it sounds, I believe that Korach absolutely, totally, completely believed that he was justified Correct. He was going to be the one who lived, and he was going to be the hero of the story. And as odd as it sounds, 
He waged a rebellion against the Masorah, waged a rebellion against God, waged the Masorah against the entire Torah, was bringing the Jewish nation to a civil war and felt that everything that he did was correct, justified, and right. Because he never could have done it otherwise. He wasn't a fool, but he was a human being. And I used to feel a certain pachad when we got to Parshas Korach, because I would say, oh my goodness, look at the, the, the power of, of covet. Oh my goodness, <clears throat> who knows? I better be careful. If, if this great tzaddik, this Korach, <clears throat> ended up, look what ended up to him. That's scary. At this stage in the game, I'm no longer scared <clears throat> when I get to Parshish Korach about covet. I'm scared about something far more terrifying. And that is I cannot trust my brain. I cannot trust my mind. Here's a man who's so much wiser than I. As a man who's so much holier than I, they don't ask me to carry the Aaron. I would be toast day one. This is a man who stood at our Sinai. This is a man who was a tremendous, tremendous person. And yet he fully, completely believed that he was doing the right thing when he was rebelling against Hashem, rebelling against the Torah, destroying the Jewish nation. And when I get to Parshas Korach these days, my pachad is, oh my goodness, how do I know to trust my brain? And that is the great Yesod. You can't. You cannot trust your brain. And the more right you know you are, the more you have to stop and say, uh-oh. And I'll explain to you what I mean in very simple terms. From this parsha, we learn at Elosa say, don't be like Korach and his congregation. Don't be machzik b'machlokas. Don't hold fast in a machlokas. Okay. So that's what Elosa say. Don't get involved in machlokas. And certainly if you're in some type of machlokas, don't be mach, don't hold it. You have to make peace. Don't make machlokas. Okay. Well, here's the problem. Anytime, anytime I'm in a machlokas, I know one thing. I am right. Listen, I wouldn't argue if I thought I was wrong. I wouldn't fight with you if I thought I was wrong. The only reason I'm going to fight with you, the only reason I'm going to argue with you is because I know that I'm right. So how could you tell me, don't argue, don't be like Korach, I would only do it if I know I'm right, and I'm only doing it because I'm right. What you're telling me is don't be right? What you're telling me is that, that if you feel something passionately, and you know factually that that man is doing something wrong. He's destroying an institution, destroying the Kleisrol. You should just let him do it. You'd only fight if you know actually that he's dead wrong. So how can you tell me not to be machlik, not to be machzik machlokas? If any time I'm going to be involved in anything like that, I'm going to be blind as a bat. And this, my friends, is that great principle that we have to look at a man like Korach and say, oh my goodness, what a strange creation this human being is. What a strange creature this thing called human is, and I too am a human. And you have to train yourself not to trust your mind. You have to train yourself not to trust your thoughts. You have to train yourself that everything that goes across the screen of my mind is my brain speaking. Some of it may be correct, some of it may be wrong. Some of it may be dead wrong. Some of it may be the opposite of truth. And no matter how clear it is to me, and no matter how many times my brain plays that tape again and again and again, it doesn't make it right. 
and learning not to trust your brain, and learning not to trust the thoughts that you think is one of the great principles of growth. If you think about it, the vast, vast majority of our mitzvahs are internal. The vast majority of mitzvahs have to do with the way I feel, the way I think, what I believe. And the vast work of Avodah Hashem is changing the way I feel, the way I think, learning not to trust my brain, but learning to mold the thoughts that go across the screen of my mind, and learning to think the thoughts that I'm supposed to and not think the thoughts that I'm not supposed to. And one of the great principles of success in life is learning not to trust your mind. And if you take nothing else from this event of Korah, other than the fact that such a wise man, such a brilliant man, a man who could take 250 Roshis and Hedrin and convince him, convince him that Moshe Rabbeinu was wrong. Don't forget, Moshe Rabbeinu went up to Arsenai. Moshe Rabbeinu spent 40 days and 40 nights without food, without drink, and he did it three times in a row. He went up three times. For 120 days, he lived like a Malach Elohim. Don't you think maybe Moshe Rabbeinu is right? And yet Korach was such a powerful influence that he convinced 250 Roshi Sanhedrin that Moshe Rabbeinu was wrong and he was right. And the reason why the 250 Roshi Sanhedrin went along with Korach was because just as Korach believed that he was right, they too believed that he was right. And just as they went with him, everyone who went with him sincerely and actually believed that Korach was correct, Moshe was wrong. And as clear as it is to us today, with hindsight through the eyes of history, it wasn't clear at all to them. And the brain will pull you, the brain will influence you, but not because the brain has any thoughts of its own, but because the brain is a handmaiden to whatever desire, whether it be gaiva or kinner or kas or sinner or whatever else, and any time you find yourself in an argument with a human being, you have to say to yourself, uh-oh, the minute I argue, the minute there's any sense of my being hurt or personally involved, I have to know I'm pusillatus. Whatever flashes to my brain is worthless. Whatever flashes across the screen of my mind has no validity whatsoever. The minute I feel you hurt my feelings, the minute I feel you touched my ego, the minute I feel like there's something personal here, I have to say to myself what I think clearly, what I know factually is worthless, has no validity whatsoever. Korach really believed the truth that Moshe Rabbeinu was inventing things. Korach fully accepted it to the extent that he was willing to go at least to 250 people's death, maybe his own. And I have to know that any time I get into an argument with any human being, the minute there's something personal, the minute my feelings are hurt, the minute I have an agenda in it, I am toast. And by the way, one of the rules of arguments is how do you win every argument? You don't, because you can never win an argument, because all an argument does is dig in deeper and deeper, each person holding their side more clearly. However, I believe that there's a much bigger lesson for us from this. Have you ever fought for a principle? Laman Hashem, for a principle. Listen, normally I don't get into machlokas, normally I get into fight, but this is the Shem Shemayim. The minute you have that feeling you had better find yourself in another place. 
Because the minute you're fighting L'Shem Shemayim, I guarantee, unless your name is Shammai or Hillel, I guarantee it's not L'Shem Shemayim. And if you're not sure that I'm right, probably the greatest example of this is when husband and wife fight over principles. And the principles will be very important things, which Yeshiva to send the children to, maybe Tznias, Hashan Hora, Kashrus. Listen, principles. We're talking about major, major things, principles. We're not talking about life things. And let's assume we're talking about really big deal principles. Of course, that's worthy of a fight, right? Okay. So let's let's sort of ask ourselves, is it true? So what happens when any couple, and assuming you have a good marriage, and assuming things are going well, uh, you get into a fight, a little scuffle. You said, he said, she said, he said, boom, bam, 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 bam. And all of a sudden, feelings are hurt, words got sharper and sharper, and before you know it, you're in a real full-scale fight. Okay, now let's look at it and let's think to ourselves the following. Malbim Pnei Chaveru Barabim is something for which you have to give up your life, not to do. Tosa says not to embarrass another Jew in public is something that is a Yarg V'Leavar. But let's even say your wife, it wasn't in public and no one else said it. But the words were cutting and damaging and they deeply hurt her feelings. Onaz Dvarim, oppressing another Jew with words is a full losa say in the Torah. Lo sikum, don't take revenge. What you did to me, you have to what you do, do deserve more. Yeah, that's called lo sikum. That's called nikama. Lo sita, well, I'm better than you. You did that. I won't do that to you. Oh, that's another law of the Torah. And how about lo <clears throat> Don't hate your neighbor. Oh, I don't hate you. Just what you did, you deserve. If you count the amount of full blown losasays and assays that you trample on in any fight with your spouse, you'll quickly realize that any principle you could ever fight about is never worth it. First of all, no fight ever wins. No one ever wins at Machlokas. And principles are the worst things in the world to stop and make fights on. But just do the math. The principle of Kashra, I guarantee you as nothing, nothing compared to the amount of Averas that went forward after the fight began. Oh, but I was right. Yeah, I know. But I started to stand up for principles of Hashem. Yeah, right. Do you think Hashem's very happy? Do you think Hashem is happy when the closest supporters, the best friends, and best friends who love each other are at each other's throats? And okay, they're not fighting with fists, but they're fighting with words and hurting and cutting. And there's nothing like a spouse who knows how to hurt, knows how to damage and is nothing like a spouse who's as vulnerable one to the other. And the amount of damage, the amount of averas, and the amount of clear, obvious sins, major sins that happen is incredible. And likely the fight is not 30 seconds long. And if you count the words in each word, and each embarrassing phrase, and each damaging phrase, and then the Kama and then the Tira, and it's incredible. And I don't care how good your Midas are. And I don't care what a Tzaddik you are. If you get into a tussle, and she said, and he said, and then before you know it, you're going to be responding, and the words you're saying are not kind, sweet, and nice. And I guarantee that you're over Avera after Avera after Avera, but I was right, and I did it for principles. I believe there's a tremendous lesson to learn from Korach. And that lesson is the minute you feel you're right, that's when it's time to stop and check out. Because the minute there's any sort of personal sense, 
the minute there's any sort of like hurt feeling in the slightest way, I have to say to myself, I am puzzle My brain is the handmaid of desire. Well, guess what? My feelings were hurt and the feelings take over the computer. And before you know it, flashes in front of the screen is every thought that the brain will now churn out to defend the hurt feelings and the sense of indignation and a sense of being wronged. And before you know it, the logic starts spooning out and they start coming forth. But it's not true. Korach actually went to his death. Korach was willing to bring 250 men to his death, knowing full well that what what Moshe did was wrong. Stolen from him. Stolen from me. He stole. I want to ask you a question, Korach. With all due respect, who said that Nasir for a family is given out by birth order? And not just birth order, birth order of uncles. There are four brothers. So the oldest uncle got two. So we go to the next one. For, who said that? Nowhere in the Torah did it say it. Nowhere did Moshe Rabbeinu say it. Nowhere did Hashem say it. He invented a logic. According to his logic, he was entitled to it. And because he was entitled to it, it was stolen from him. And once it was stolen, the brain went into high gear. Obviously, Moshe stole this, and he made up this, and he invented this, and, and everything. Hare, and, he, and both the, I'm going to undo everything Moshe said. I don't think he thought those words out. But that's what his brain began doing. And you see, the, the brain becomes very, very focused on whoever takes control of the keyboard. And learning that I am not the brain is a tremendous yesod. I have to first understand I'm not the arms, I'm not the legs, I'm not the head, I'm, the che- I'm not the chest, I'm the guy inside. And then I have to understand I'm not the brain. But then I have to understand that just like a man who has OCD, and he climbs up the stairs, and it's the 39th time, and he says to himself, I checked the door, I checked the door, I checked the door. But his brain says it's not locked. He has to say the words, very nice. It's not locked, I'm going to bed. But, but, but how do you know? I don't. But, 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 I don't. Because if he believes his brain, he's toast. He'll be a slave to that, locking the door. And you hear people who don't manage to win, and it'll be 200 times, 400 times, hour after hour after hour. And just like a young Bachar has thoughts that come into his brain that he never dreamt, he doesn't want, and he pushes them, and he doesn't want them. But he has to understand that that computer called his brain is taken over by different things, and some of which are desire, and etc. So too, all of us have to understand that I have many, many different things going on inside me. There's ego, there's envy, there's desire, there are appetites, and whichever one gets control, takes control of that computer, much like a family, five children, whoever gets that keyboard, that's what's going to go flashing across the screen. The difficult part, again, is that it's my brain, and it sure does sound like me. And I know it factually because my brain says it, and I think it out again and again and again, and can't you see how true it is? Can't you see how obvious it is? And the more obvious and the more clear the more I have to realize my brain is not correct. It's my brain saying it, my brain thinking it, but that doesn't make it correct. And I think one of the greatest yesods you can learn from Korach, yes, covet is a scary thing, but a far more important lesson to learn is how easily our brain is fooled, how easily our brain can be hijacked, how easily the computer called my brain can be kidnapped, by various desires, and then whatever it spews forth is worthless. 
and getting comfortable with the idea that every thought that I think is not necessarily Torah's emes and every thought that I think is not necessarily correct requires a lot of time. And more than anything, the closer the people are, the more the feelings are going to be hurt, and especially in the context of a marriage, it's a husband, it's a wife, there's no closer relationship. There's no two people who are ever as close, and therefore there's no two people who are ever as vulnerable, and therefore as much as we try, and as much as we work on things, there are going to be things I say wrong. There are going to be things slight each other's honor. And I have to recognize that the minute that there's a principle involved, I'm doing it, Laman Hashem, run away. Don't be machzik but I'm right. And I'm doing it for the children. I'm doing it for the benefit of the kid, kids. That, that, that's what, this is right. This is Emmett. This is, this is what should be. Exactly. That's when you run away. That's exactly when you say the words, my brain is telling me this principle is worth fighting for. This principle is right. And my brain is wrong. May Hashem grant us the wisdom, understanding, the ability to put this into practice, the ability to serve Hashem properly with true Yerushalayim and Emes.